Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Allen. I'm so glad that you're joining us, whether in person or online. And this is a great Sunday to join us because we're starting a new series. We're going to take a topic and talk about it for about a month. And this series is titled Unreligious, and you might even have problems with that series title. We'll explain that a little bit. And this first week, we're going to talk about reflections of a religious fanatic. So let me start with a word, the word religion. When you hear the word religion, what kind of emotional response does that bring in you? Is it a positive response or is it a negative response? A lot probably has to do with your history. If you've had a good experience with what you consider religion or if you had a bad experience with religion. Now, if it's a negative term for you, there's lots of good reasons for it to be negative, whether you've personally been involved in something or not. Historically, the church has been guilty of huge atrocities in the name of God. I was a history major in college, not that I needed to be, but I study history. You go back a thousand years ago to the Crusades, armies of quote-unquote Christians from Europe went to Jerusalem and killed Muslims, and Muslims killed uh, these folks from, from Europe, and that went back and forth for a while, all in the name of religion or a God. <clears throat> a couple hundred years later, we had the uh, Spanish Inquisition, uh, the Catholic Church, which was most of the people in church of those days, <clears throat> was torturing uh, people to get them to do stuff or not to do stuff that they were doing, believe stuff or not to believe stuff. And it goes on and on, even in modern days, in our recent culture, there's uh, abuses, uh, sexual abuse and others in the name of God. Um, Slavery, uh, 150 years ago, was, was uh, approved of and supported by, quote-unquote, uh, religious people. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. <clears throat> and maybe you, probably somebody you know, has given up on religion uh, for different reasons. Maybe a bad experience. Maybe it just seems like a waste of time. Uh, maybe in some phase of your life, you gave up on what we would call religion. Now, one, one issue with religion is it is an attempt to control. It is an attempt to control what you believe. It's an attempt to control what you do. And in reality, the bottom line is this, and we all have this in common, is that it's an attempt at trying to manipulate God. What I mean by that is you're trying to get God to do something. You're getting, trying to get God's favor. So, whether you're tuning in this morning or present here, maybe your motivation is, well, God will be nicer to me. He will bless me. He will do good things for me if I do this for Him. Or if you read your Bible, if you pray, if you put some money in the offering plate, or if you help the poor, whatever it might be. It's so easy to fall in what I call into the trap of religion where you're doing with an ulterior motive. You're doing it to trying to manipulate God to get God's favor, get Him to do something for you. So bottom line is it's selfish. It's, it's centered on us. <clears throat> now, no matter how you feel about religion, religion is certainly not going to go away. There's billions and billions of people in this world that follow some form of religion, even with all the issues and problems with it. Now, <clears throat> I want to try and get at the root of what are we trying to get out of religion? on the positive side, what, what, what are we trying to 
what questions are we trying to get answers to? So I'm going to give you three. I'll bring them up now and we'll try and answer them at the end. First question is, who is God? Is there a God? What's He like? Uh, so through religion, we're trying to find the answer. Who is God? What's He like? The second question is then, if there is a God, does this God know me personally? Does He know my name? Is He kind of a, just a power out there? <laughs> or is He a personal God that wants to have a connection with me? And so that brings up the third question, then does God really care about me? Maybe He knows everybody by name, but He really doesn't care. <laughs> and some religions, especially some ancient religions, uh, especially in the time of Jesus, that was kind of their beliefs about gods. The gods were kind of fickle. They didn't, the Roman gods and the Greek gods, and they didn't really care about people. But if you find yourself in the place where you are anti-God, maybe anti-religion, the best word I can describe it is it must be a lonely place. And one of the songs that we just sang was about not being alone. And one of the amazing things about being a Jesus follower is I am never alone. And that is awesome. I can't imagine living in the loneliness of feeling that it truly is you alone. And what happens to people is they, I describe it this way, they've lost assurance. They've lost belief. They've lost faith. Um, maybe they tried religion and nothing happened or nothing good happened. Or what they wanted to happen didn't happen. So, tried it, didn't benefit me, it wasn't helpful to me. In fact, maybe my life got worse. Um, so, I, I can't have any faith or belief in this thing that isn't really paying off for me. But the funny thing about the way we're wired as human beings, <clears throat> we seem to have this deep need, to, a desire to have purpose and meaning in life. Some of you are pet owners, I'm not, but uh, pet owners don't struggle with this. I mean, pets don't. The owners <laughs> with pets don't. Uh, for example, we ask the question, why? Your pet doesn't ask the question, why? <laughs> uh, they weren't made the same way as human beings are. And we're made with this need to think there is something, even ask the question, why? If, if it's all evolution, if it's all just natural selection, if it's all just random, then we shouldn't even ask the question why because there is no answer. It's just random, right? It's just an accident. Uh, so just the need to ask the question implies that there was a, a need for purpose and meaning or, or, or something beyond my little life. Now, we've all probably heard this, maybe even said this to someone, everything happens for a reason. Again, that implies that there's purpose and meaning. That there's some power out there that is manipulating things or controlling things. Um, if you don't believe that, then the answer to that question is no. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Because there is no reason. There is no logic. There is no purpose. But no matter how you believe or what you believe or how unreligious or irreligious you are, religion is not going to go away because of this need that we have. So one way to ask this or think about this is maybe we're looking for God in all the wrong places if we're not finding Him, if we're not connecting with Him. Now, if I lose my keys, for example, 
and I'm looking through all my coat pockets in my closet, and I don't find them because they're in my desk, I'm never going to find them in my closet, right? So, no matter how hard we may look for God in religion, if we're looking in the wrong place, we're never going to find it. And one of the things religion tends to do is put, I call, God in a box. And that's why we have different denominations. Catholics have their box, the Methodists have their box, uh, the Pentecostals have their box, <laughs> the Baptists have their box. And we, th we tend to think, well, you've got to find God in your box. <laughs> and I can't find God in that box or even some other box I haven't even thought of. And so consequently, we tend to cling to our box, even if it isn't answering the questions for us, even if it's not connecting us with God because we don't know what else there is. Now, I want to throw a new term out with you. Out there. I don't even know if it's a real term uh, this morning. And maybe you never thought about this. But the term is this, deconversion. Let me explain what I mean. Anytime you go from one belief to another, you converted to that belief, but you deconverted from your former belief. Many of us entered adulthood, or in my case, uh, teen years, without a belief in God. I wasn't a Jesus follower. So when I became a Jesus follower as a teenager, I deconverted from not being a Jesus follower to being a Jesus follower. Some of you went the opposite way. Maybe you grew up in church. Somewhere along the line you said, I, I, I can't buy this. I don't believe this. You deconverted from being a Christian to atheism or whatever classification you would use for your present belief system. So this is going to come in uh, into focus when we look at the, the scriptural text we're going to look at today. And the text is going to answer one, the basic question, and I put it this way, what is the starting point for a genuine, emotional, intimate connection with God? Where does it start? How does it start? Um, we're going to find the answer in the text we're going to look at today. <clears throat> now, we talk about the Bible. Some of you don't believe the Bible. All right, let me back up a little bit then. The text we're going to read today was originally a document written by a guy at the time named Paul. Originally, his name was Saul. And he wrote down his deconversion experience. And some people read it, thought it was important enough to rewrite it or pass it around. And this happened for several hundred years because the Bible didn't come to hundreds of years after Jesus. And so eventually when they put together what we call the Bible, they thought this document that Paul wrote about his deconversion was important enough to include it in there. So you can dish the Bible if you want to. This is a document that documents, that makes sense, I guess, that documents this experience this guy named Paul had. Now, you can not believe what you want, but this is his experience. This is his story. And you can argue with me all you want, but you can't argue with my story because my story is my story. So this is Paul's story. So that's fascinating. Now, one other thing. Christianity wasn't called, and Christians weren't called Christians at the beginning. Uh, they use a different term, and the term was followers of the way. Jesus, I am the way, so I'm a follower of the way. Eventually became Christians, little, Christ, little Christ, that's what that means. 
So that's important to remember in, in, in this context that uh, Paul is going to be on trial for being a follower of the way. Now, <clears throat> little background. Uh, Paul gets arrested <laughs> for this by the Jewish leaders, and they put him on trial, but it wasn't something that was against the law in Roman law. It was a religious issue. And so um, the soldiers that arrested him thought he was just, you know, a Jew or uh, Egyptian or someone else. And Paul says, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm a Roman citizen. And I can imagine these, these, these folks that arrest him saying, uh-oh, <laughs> we, we just made a mistake. Because you can't treat people that aren't Roman citizens like Roman citizens. And so he was denied some rights. And so, uh-oh, they had to correct that. And part of that correction is he was due a trial. <laughs> Even though the charges weren't uh, political charges, they were more religious charges, he demanded and received a trial. Eventually, he, he wanted to go to Rome, even though it wasn't necessary. Uh, that's where he winds up. So we're going to read this in what we call the book of Acts, chapter 26. Again, it wasn't written that way. It wasn't written in the Bible. It wasn't called book of Acts, and it wasn't written in chapters and verses. But that's what we use today. So then Agrippa, he's the king, that the area king that Paul had to go before uh, after being uh, arrested. And he said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. Okay, I'm here to listen, I'm here to judge. It's your time to speak, defend yourself. So Paul gestured with his hands and started his defense. Now, this King Agrippa was the grandson of King Herod. Herod was the king that built, rebuilt the temple. He, re, he built the uh, city of Caesarea where this took place. We'll show you a couple of pictures. He uh, was the one that had the babies killed when Jesus was a baby. And Je Jesus escaped that. So this is his grandson, they just passed it on, kingships passed on, the family members. And so here's a couple of pictures last year about this time, uh, actually in April, May, my wife and I get to go there. And this is probably 90 miles north of Jerusalem on the coast. Uh, Herod took a little fishing village and made it this huge Roman city called Caesarea. And you can see just a few of the, the ruins here in this picture. And it's a beautiful place. It's on the coast. You see some of the coastline here in the next picture, uh, the rock outcroppings and so forth. So this is where the next picture actually shows the believed room that this trial took place in, which was awesome. We were standing there. This was actual room that, that King Agrippa was standing in and Paul was standing in giving his defense. So that was an awesome experience for us. So let's go on with his defense. And Paul was a great orator, a great uh, <clears throat> speaker. <clears throat> and he was wise, and he said, starts out this way. I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert on all Jewish custom and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. And of course, you want to be listened to and you want to be the person to be patient. But we would say he's buttering him up, right? <laughs> he's shown him respect, but he's also buttering up. He's thankful for the fact that this 
person that is knowledgeable about what he's going to talk about is, is the one he gets to, to be his judge. So he goes on, he tells a story. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood, from my whole entire life, among our own people in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, which is the kind of the most respected group of the Jewish leaders. He describes it as the strictest sect of our religion. So they're the most religious of the religion. That's from his childhood up until adulthood. And he explains how that, that uh, worked out in his life. And he says, now I'm on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. What promise was that? Well, that the Messiah was going to come, the Deliverer was going to come. That's promised in the Old Testament, their scriptures. And he says, I, you know, I'm on trial for believing that in, in, in that hope. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day. And they share the same hope I have for hundreds, if not more than thousands of years. This is the good news we've been waiting for. The Messiah is coming. He said, well, <laughs> that's the hope I believe in. Yet, your majesty again, <laughs> they accuse me of having this hope. Why, and then he asked a really interesting question. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Now, this has always been befuddling to me as a pastor. Uh, most people believe in a, a, a almighty or, or all-powerful force out there. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. Yet they struggle with what I call simple things like raising your dead. So God can create the universe, but he can't raise the dead? It just seems uh, uh, strange to me. And so he asked the question. You know, he works for this all-powerful God. Why do people struggle with the fact that this Jesus guy that I believe is a Messiah and the reason I believe is in this Bible because he was raised from the dead. How, in fact, could this be a criminal offense or belief? And then he says, okay, let me go back. I'm talking about my past. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene and indeed the followers of the way. I did this in Jerusalem, again, the center of Judaism, I was authorized by these leading priests, the same ones that had me arrested. I caused many of these believers uh, there to be sent to prison. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Now, again, the, the, the Ten Commandments were in the Old Testament. That's the law they followed. Uh, it says not to kill, but the exception obviously was for what they would call blasphemy. So you can't kill only for blasphemy. So he was having people killed for he thought, used to believe, was blasphemy. Now, let me just stop here. Unless you're pretty young, I believe all of us would have to agree, I used to believe something that I don't now. Now, some of you, it's big. I used to not be a Jesus follower, now I am. Or I used to be a Jesus follower, and I'm not. But even as a pastor, I used to teach things as a pastor, I believe, were things from God that I don't believe now. And so I struggle with that. 
Um, and I've talked to some of you about that. So was I wrong then and am I right now? Or was I right then and am I wrong now? So this is a struggle people that speak in the name of Jesus have to, have to wrestle with. So we all used to believe something. So he said, I used to believe this, but let me ask you a simple question about it. Did he truly believe he was serving God? Absolutely. In fact, he was fanatically serving God. He was a religious, Jewish religious fanatic. 100% believed what he was doing was right. I used to believe it. He goes on to explain it many times. <laughs> I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. Kind of sounds like the Inquisition, doesn't it? I was so violently opposed. This is really emotional to him. Now, I even chased him down in foreign cities. So, I, you know, I cleaned up Jerusalem, then I had to find some other places. Uh, this, was my, this was my task, to get rid of this false teaching called the way as followers of Jesus. And then he's going to go on to explain his deconversion. Because he was a very religious man. So one day, I was on such a mission to Damascus. Damascus is kind of uh, uh, northeast of Jerusalem. Armed with the authority and commission of the leading priest, same ones that arrested him, about noon. Now notice the detail here. This is not some story he made up. He's describing an event from his life. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. Companions. So I didn't just see this. A group of us saw this. This really happened. We all fell down. That's what you do when something like this happens. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. Now here's a question you might get asked sometime. What language does God speak? Well, he speaks Aramaic evidently, right? <laughs> no, he speaks all languages. Hopefully he does. So what? When I pray in English, he hears me. And when you pray, other people pray in other languages, that God hears them. But we know for one thing, he actually can speak Aramaic. <laughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we usually think of people being persecuted, right? But he's saying, no, you're persecuting me. Now, I got to thinking about this. <clears throat> if you persecute, I have four children. If you persecute one of my children, you're persecuting me. In fact, I may take it uh, worse than my kids would. And so Jesus is saying, you're persecuting one of my kids, you're persecuting me. And then this fascinating statement. Uh, some older translations, it's kind of confusing to understand what it means, but here it's pretty clear. It is useless for you, Paul, to fight against my will. Now we have this term, all-powerful God. Well, who could fight or even should try and fight again an all-powerful, right? It's, it's, it's a losing battle. It's useless, as he said. You can't win. Now, God doesn't force himself on anyone. But I'll give you an example. When I was uh, 17, almost 18, summer of 1969, uh, God was, we used the term calling into the ministry, and I didn't want to be a preacher or didn't want to be a pastor, and so I was fighting it. And <laughs> I was miserable, Trying to fight against, uh, trying, uh, trying to move an immovable object, right? <laughs> I was miserable until I said, okay, God, I will go into the ministry. And then I was fine. So it's useless. 
You can fight and be miserable, or you can, we use the word, surrender. He asked, who are you, Lord? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been serving you as best I can, God, but you're saying I'm persecuting you, and I think you're, you know, you're, you're a, a, heret, um, a false prophet. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one, again, who you are persecuting. Now, one reason it's useless to fight against God because God loves us and wants what's best for us. So why would you want to fight against what's best for you? <laughs> uh, he, he, he doesn't want you hurting yourself. Again, I think of a parent. We don't let our kids play in the street. We don't let them touch a hot stove because that would be hurting themselves. And so that's the same with our loving Heavenly Father. <clears throat> but Paul, at this point, his name was Saul, at this point, he was thoroughly convinced he was right, but he was wrong. So, text goes on. Paul's story goes on. Get to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and witness. Okay, so now you're going to be my servant and my witness. What does witnesses do? They tell. Tell people that you've seen. Tell them what I will show you later in the future. And I will rescue you both from the people and from the Gentiles. You're going to be safe. I'm all powerful, right? Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm a Jew Judaism is for Jews. I feel we let a few of the Gentiles in, but you know, most of the time, <laughs> they're not worth, worth your effort, God. Open the eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God. <clears throat> um, they can't see. can't see in the dark, right? So, Paul, you go and show them the light. Let them see. And Satan is re- referred to as the one that deceives or keeps us in the dark. <clears throat> Help them to have their eyes open. And then here's the key. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people, God's family, who are set apart by faith in me. And then this next verse is one of my favorite. First reason is the first time I spoke in Portuguese before a group at the church, this was my text. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 19. So then King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. In that context, that was why I was an international missionary in Portugal because that was the vision that God had given Deb and I and we weren't disobedient to it. Well, whatever that vision is, whatever calling God has given to you, don't be disobedient to it. Um, don't walk away from it. And he's, saying, I, he's saying, I can't walk away from it. As, as a 17-year-old, I said, I can't walk away, away from this vision God has given me. So, back to our question. What is the starting point for a genuine connection, intimate relationship with God? Paul told us in his, in his testimony. We use testimony, his personal story. Receiving the forgiveness of sin. So, one of the differences I'm going to explain between religion and Christianity is this. All religions of the world it's an attempt to give God something to get something back from God. All right? So what God is saying to us through Paul in this text, or he said it to, to Paul on that road was, or we can ask the questions, so you want to give me something? You're not wanting me to, to get something from me? 
yeah, 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 Saul, Paul. <laughs> I want to give you forgiveness for your sins. You've sinned against me. I want to forgive you. Paul will write in another place, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took the initiative. Before we did anything in response to him, he said, I want to forgive you. I provide the way for you to be forgiven, to, to be uh, our relationship to be restored. <clears throat> um, just, I would say, the opposite of religion. So one thing, everybody I know anyway, we all have in common. What is that? What do we all have in common? That we need to ask forgiveness. And you leave God out of this. You need to, I've asked multiple times to ask forgiveness from my spouse. All of us have probably had to ask forgiveness from our parents. Uh, I've had to ask forgiveness from my children. I don't know, probably my grandchildren even. I most likely have. Uh, employer, employee, church, fellow church members. Multiple times I've had to ask church members to forgive me. So forgiveness is the key to, I'm going to put it up there, restoring of relationships. When there's an issue that is pushing us apart, separating us, what brings us back together or draws us closer together or restores the relationship, restores the intimacy or the closeness, is forgiveness. So God's offered to, that, to us, to everyone. Now let me ask you, do you walk toward or do you walk away from the forgiveness? Do you walk toward it, intimacy or walk away from it? Oh, my wife wants to be in, have intimacy with me, but I don't want to. Now we walk toward it. And so that's what God is doing. He's allowing. He's, he's offering intimacy with you, relationship with you. He says something like this. I don't want to control you. Religion wants to control you, but I don't want to control you. I want to restore you. You can find God through His offer of forgiveness. Now again, Paul, when he was Saul, was sincere about his religion and sincerely wrong. Maybe you, maybe I are sincerely wrong. But back to those three questions. How would Paul answered this question, who is God? Well, he's your loving Heavenly Father. And he's offering you forgiveness. This disruptive relationship. Does he know my name? Well, he knows your sins, evidently, if he's going to forgive them, right? So he knows you pretty intimately, so I'm assuming he knows your name. And if he's offering forgiveness, he certainly cares about you and me. So I want to leave you something to think about. <clears throat> and I've got a lot more I want to talk about about this topic. We've got a couple more weeks. Hopefully you can join us. Are we looking for God in all the wrong places or some of the wrong places? And it may be religion and or religious activity. If you're not finding Him, obviously it's the wrong place. Let me pray with you and let you go. Father God, thank you. We thank you for this uh, fascinating um, true life story from this guy named, well, originally Saul. He changed his name to Paul. We thank you for his enthusiastic commitment to his, first his religion, and then his intimate personal relationship with you, God. 
What an example for us. And for anybody here or anybody watching God that, that, that's in need of that connection, the need to find purpose and meaning, the need to have those questions answered, I would pray, God, that they would understand that this is a gift. This is something you want to give without asking anything in return. It's a, uh, something you just have to believe. Uh, will our lives be changed tremendously? And we'll grow in intimacy with God and our lives will be changed and transformed through that. So that's just uh, saying yes to God and that transformation can happen, that new birth. Uh, many watching or listening are, are Jesus followers. But it's so easy to let Christianity become a religion of kind of swapping God for things or trying to manipulate God. Forgive us for that. And let us just love you, God, like you love us. Uh, thank you again for your love for us, the fact that Jesus died, and truly we believe not a big deal, God, for you to raise him from the dead so that we can have hope. The hope the Jews are waiting for, we have this good news. We thank you in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.